0: of, I don't miss my guess, most of us have had some kind of experience in life in which we were doing something or going through something and we think we, we were actually the ones uh, actually doing it or even orchestrating it and yet we find out later that there was something happening behind the scenes more than we ever knew, some kind of influence or involvement of another that we had no idea of at the time. And you're saying like what? Well, almost all of you, when you learned to swing a bat, say when you were three years old, had that experience, where your mom or your dad was helping you learn how to swing a bat when you were first learning how to do that, and so there you are, a little guy or gal, and your dad or mom comes up behind you, and they put their big arms around you, and they take the bat, and as the ball comes, they help you bring it back, and then they swing it through for you. And if you remember how that worked, you hit the ball, and you said, look what I did. And then later on you'd realize that it wasn't quite you that did it, that there was another influence, another force, another person that was really behind the scenes making it all happen. All of us have had experiences in life where there's more going on behind the scenes than we realize at the time. I know I'm going to date myself, but one of my favorite shows of all time is the Andy Griffith Show. How many of you guys remember and like the Andy Griffith Show? Man, just about every one of you. It's just such an amazing show. It's timeless. You had Opie, Aunt B, Floyd the Barber, Otis the Drunk, Ernest T. Bass, and of course, Andy, uh, Sheriff Andy Taylor. And yet, who was the one that made us all laugh? Do you remember his name? Barney, played by Don Knotts, Barney Fife. I mean, just timeless humor. And one of my favorite episodes was called "Barney and the Choir." It was about Barney joining the community choir, and more than anything else, he wanted to lead and uh, sing a solo. And, and the only problem was Barney couldn't sing. But even worse, like some of us, he didn't know that he couldn't sing, and, and and so he wanted to sing in the worst way. But every time he'd sing, he didn't hear how bad he was, but everybody else did. And yet, as you might remember, Barney was so very sensitive about everything and nobody wanted to hurt his feelings, especially Andy. And so what Andy decided to do was to let Barney go ahead and sing the solo in this choir concert, but with the microphone turned off and a surprise voice singing behind the scenes, totally unbeknownst to the unsuspecting Barney. In fact, it gets even more complicated than that. Barney actually, or Andy had actually told Barney that this was one of those new super-sensitive microphones. Remember this, Bill? And all he had to do was just sing very, very softly and it would explode his beautiful voice. Uh, to everybody listening, that's what Andy convinced Barney of. And in typical Barney style, we had no clue, and it's hilarious to watch, so I recorded the episode for you. Look up here on the screen, you guys are going to love this, look up here on the screen, this is classic. Sometimes there is more going on behind the scenes than we know. And some of you are thinking right now, that was a great clip, but what does this have to do with God and grace? I'm telling you, it has everything to do with it. In fact, before we get done here this morning, you are going to remember that clip and hopefully tie it to something theologically in your mind that is so true about God that you'll carry with it for the rest of your life. Because you see, folks, if you can grab on at all to this idea that thinking, of thinking that you are the one who is really doing something, again, whether it's swinging a bat or singing a song, but that there is much more going on that you don't see behind the scenes than you're ready to begin to wrestle with and comprehend one of the great truisms about who God is in his relationship with us and has everything to do with his grace. And as our main point this morning, and it's simply this, look up here on the screen, and that is that when it comes to your relationship with God, from start to finish, what the Bible says is that it's all about Grace. In fact, I would submit to you that it's a lot more about Him than it is about you. That your relationship with Him, as we're going to see from start to finish, the Bible is going to declare to us, is all about His grace. All of it, every aspect, no detail left out. From the very start when you began to consider who God is and what he must be like, from the time that you realized your need for him, to when the light went on in your head to who Jesus is and how he could breathe the forgiver of your sins, to all the steps that you have taken since then in following him, even to the day that you will breathe your last breath and go to be with Christ, the Bible says it's all about his grace, period, end of story. And so to be pointed about this, it's not like how we hear many people talk, how we were in trouble and we sensed our need for God and that we cried out to him and that we finally understood who Jesus was and and that we accepted him and invited him into our lives. The way many Christians make it sound is it's kind of like God did his part, we did our part. Isn't that a wonderful partnership? I mean, that's the way many people make the, the Christian journey sound. And as we're going to see in a minute, in a sense that's true. I mean, I'm certainly not here this morning to say that there isn't such thing as will and choice involved in our walk with God. There is. But it's a mystery because the Bible also says at the same time that it's all about His grace, that there's very little, if nothing, that we can take credit for, that every aspect of the Christian life is due to His mercy, His involvement in our lives, that has everything to do with Him and very little to do with us. And so what am I talking about? Uh, To fully get this this morning, I want you to consider four key aspects of a well-honed conversion story. Four key aspects of anybody who comes to Christ and begins to walk with him as the Bible paints the picture. And I want you to notice with me as we walk through these how the Bible tells us that at each step, it's really God's grace making it all happen, not human strength or even human striving. And to accomplish this, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the book of Ephesians. We did the first seven verses, if you remember, last week in kicking off this series on grace. We're now going to look at the next three verses, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And then I'm going to throw some other scriptures in there as well that will help us understand this. So first, consider with me the first aspect of a well-honed conversion story, and that's the entire plan of your salvation Simply the fact that there is a purposeful plan in the first place in order for you to get saved, and it was God's plan. So we say it like this, the plan to provide salvation for you is totally by God's grace. Did you know that? The plan to provide salvation for you, the Bible says is totally by God's grace. This is unmistakable. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, begins there in verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. We learned last week that grace here simply means unmerited favor. That's how theologians define grace. It simply means someone doing something for you that you couldn't do on your own. And we also learned last week that grace almost always assumes some kind of need, sin, and/or inferiority that only the person giving the grace can meet. And interestingly, once you understand that, that word saved here simply assumes you need to be saved from something. And in this context, Ephesians chapter 2, we know what it's talking about, being saved from our sin. Our sin that separates us from God, both here and now, as well as eternally. And so put this together here, folks. It's saying that the origin and cause of any plan that would give you any chance of being able to be in a right relationship with God both now and throughout all eternity was by his grace. It was God's design, God's initiative, God's inertia, and God's choosing. For by grace you have been saved from sin. The plan to provide salvation was all about his grace. It originated in God and it's been executed by him and him alone. Now believe it or not we're just getting started here. Because the question that comes up at this point, if you're tracking with me, is, well, what then is or was God's plan? I mean, did God, what did God do to lead us into this salvation from temporal and even eternal sin that separates us from him? And this leads us to the second aspect of God's grace that's in charge of our salvation. And it's his provision, or to put it propositionally, we'll say it like this. The provision was to send and give Jesus Christ as one full of grace. So not only was the plan given by grace, but then the provision that helps us fulfill the plan, or is the plan, was also given by grace, And so check this out, folks. The coming of Jesus Christ into this world, what we just celebrated here at Christmas, the same Jesus that we're going to celebrate at Good Friday and Easter as the one who was a substitute for our sins and rose again on the third day, came only as a move of God's grace. And not only that, but when he did come as a move of God's grace, he came as one full of grace. I mean, I don't know what more God could do to tell us that the provision is by grace. And so look at how the Bible says it. This is unmistakable. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, here it is, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth his son. Not us. God did it. And why did he do it? To redeem us, to save us through forgiveness, something we couldn't do on our own. And notice the result, so that we might be adopted into his family. What rich imagery. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, if any of this ever happened on a human level, you and I would totally say it was a move of grace, right? Like, like if anybody ever adopts somebody into their family on a human level, if anybody ever sends somebody as an emissary to do something for them, to redeem them and save them, say like a special ops mission, well, we all agree those are moves of grace. It's somebody showing love and deference and care for another person. So my question is, if that's true on a human level, then certainly it's got to be even more true on a spiritual level. That the provision of Jesus is a total move of God's grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. And then notice that not only was the sending of Jesus about his grace, but he came full of grace. John 1, verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. Full of grace. And so Jesus was here because not only did he sent by grace, was he sent by grace, but he was even grace itself. And so, well, don't miss, folks, where we've come from and where we're now continuing toward. The plan to save you originally was one that originated in grace. You didn't deserve it, God chose to do it anyways. But then the provision of Jesus came to us from grace and even in grace. Again, it was for you, but there's very little of you involved in it yet. And then in continuing this journey in unpacking our salvation, notice with me a third aspect. And i got to tell you, this is the one that blows us the most away, and quite frankly, it offends a lot of Christians. So we need to park in front of this so that we fully understand this. But what the Bible affirms, folks, is that even the pathway for you to actually come and receive Jesus Christ into your life as Savior and Lord is also by grace. And so I say it like this, the pathway is to give you faith by grace. So the plan was to send Jesus. The provision is that Jesus actually did come. But now the pathway for you and I to become Christians in the first place, as you know, is to receive Christ as Lord and Savior through faith. But then the Bible says that even that faith That you and I have is a gift of grace. And folks, don't miss the profundity of this truth. I mean, most people admit that, of course, the plan was one of God's grace, that it was God's design and God's initiative. And most people even admit that the provision was surely one of grace, that Jesus came to us from grace and full of grace. But then if you notice, as I said earlier, it's at this point that we human beings kind of take over and we talk about how we then reached out for God and how we trusted Him for eternal life, insinuating that God did His part, we did our part, that He made the plan and the provision, and we just happen to recognize it because we're so bright and we stumbled upon it and that now we've accepted Christ. Isn't that good that we did that? And again, it's a mystery. I'll admit this to you guys. In one sense, it's true. You have a will. You have a choice. The Bible calls all of us to choose Christ. Some of us do and some of us don't. But what's fascinating is that for those of us who do, the Bible pulls a fast one and it reveals to us that even the faith that we had and now have to choose Christ was of God's grace without which you wouldn't have had the faith in the first place. In other words, the Bible says that God was swinging the bat, he was singing the song, even when we are trusting in Christ and continue to trust now. If you don't believe me, I want you to look back at Ephesians 2, because this passage is very clear on this. It's one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible on helping us understand God's grace. So look again at verses 8 and 9, and you tell me if it's not saying what I think it's saying. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, we get that. But look at what it says next. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this, not of yourselves, it's a result of God's gift to you, not of your own works, so that nobody can boast. If you're tracking with me right now, one of the most important words in all of this passage here, believe it or not, is that four-letter word, this. It's that word, this. And what theologians ask the question is, is when they're unpacking the this, this verse here, is what is this referring to, right? For grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. So what is this, this, it's talking about here? It could be referring to just grace, and saying in this grace is not of yourselves, The only problem with that view is that grace by its very nature is unmerited. Grace by its very nature is not of your own doing. Plus that word grace is more far removed from the this there. There's stuff that comes after that. So the best choice is not to say that it's just the grace referring to here. No, what most theologians point out is that the this is referring to either the entire previous sentence or even maybe the faith itself, just the faith. And so what it's saying is, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith and even this grace that saves you is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. Do you see, folks, even the faith you have, God relates back to his grace. It's given to you by him. I love how one commentator on Ephesians says it. He says that faith is, and I quote, a divinely generated activity. I like that. A divinely generated activity. Simply put, if God wasn't working in your life, if he wasn't helping you lift your hand so that you can lift it up to even reach out to him, you wouldn't have him in your life. Even the faith you have is a result of his grace. God is helping you swing the bat. He's helping you sing the song. Now, it's worth mentioning also at this point, before we move on to the fourth aspect of our conversion by grace journey, that faith and faith alone, did you notice that? It's the pathways, the means of you and I coming into a right relationship with God. I don't know if you caught it or not, but our passage here in verse 9 goes to great lengths to make it clear that it is faith, this receiving of Jesus Christ into our lives and his death on a cross for our sins, it is faith with nothing else added that leads us into a right relationship with god and some of you are thinking right now well what more could we add i'm glad you asked i want you to think about the answer to that question but what more could somebody add to their faith in trying to experience god's salvation and the first seven verses talk about the fact that we're kind of dead in our trespasses and sins that when it comes to human ingenuity and all those things that we bring to our marketplace jobs and all that that those aren't really going to help And then it's interesting that in this passage here, it actually gives us the direct answer to our question there in verse 9. It says, by faith, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So it's saying any good works that you do, any moral inventory that you try to bring into the process, any good, benevolent, kind things that you try to bring into the process— as good and wonderful as those are, those things are not going to help you in being saved and securing a relationship with Almighty God. Isn't that interesting? And this book in the book of Romans makes it very clear that it's faith and faith alone, this receiving what Jesus has done for us, his grace, that is what secures a relationship with God with us. And quite frankly, we muddy the waters when we try to bring in all of our good works as to somehow bolster our case before God. It never works. In fact, the rallying cry of Christianity for 2,000 years now, folks, has been that it's faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, not good works, as the grounds of our justification before God, what brings us into a right relationship with him. And all I can tell you is that the church today, I think, is still massively confused on this issue. I can't tell you how many times I hear well meaning Christians, I'm not talking about just seekers, but well meaning Christians, when they define their relationship with God, how much they are banking on their good works to get into heaven. In fact, it's very common for me to ask somebody, if they're a Christian, just ask a very simple question, not a trick question, but if they're a Christian, why is it that God's gonna allow you into heaven? What is it that's gonna cause Him to allow you to be into heaven as a Christian? And nine times out of ten, somebody will say, well, I go to church every Sunday. Isn't that wonderful? And I joined a Bible study, and I served down at Neighborhood Ministries, and I become much kinder to my wife or my husband, and I'm not doing those nasty things that I used to do. Folks, listen, all those are good things. If you walk out here today and say, Jamie says we shouldn't do good works, you miss the point. It's just that all those good works that we do, as we're going to see in a minute, that our follow-ups to our salvation don't contribute to our salvation an iota. In fact, God says, if you try to bring them into the equation, you've missed the gospel, you've missed his grace, you've not understood what it is that he has done for you, how rude your sin is to him, and how helpless you are before him. And you and I live in a world today, and I'm telling you, the average person truly believes that it's their good works, that it's their being a good citizen that's going to get them into heaven someday, and it's just not true. Henry Grunwald is the famous editor-in-chief of Time magazine during the 1970s and 80s, and he once said this quote. He said, there is only one religion, and that is to be good. There's only one religion, and that is to be good. And I'm telling you, folks, that sums up the way that the average person in the Western world, certainly the average person in America, thinks about God and his grace. That as long as we're better than our neighbor, as long as we're not this bad or this good, I mean this bad, that then certainly... God is going to help us. And the reality is is that not only is that way too simplistic, it's deceivingly wrong. Jack Welch is the very outspoken and lively former CEO of General Electric, and about five, six years ago, he was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And at one point in the interview, he was asked, what's the toughest question you've ever been asked in life? And without blinking, he said, that's easy. Do you think you'll go to heaven? And when asked how he answered this question, listen to what Welch said. Look up here on the screen. This is very revealing. He said, it's a long answer, but I said that if caring about people, if giving it your all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple of times and no one's proud of that, I haven't done everything right all the time, but I think I got a shot. And then he adds, I'm in no hurry to get there and find out anytime soon. Folks, I think that Welch represents the mindset of millions upon millions of the way people think today. And that is that, hey, I've made some mistakes in my life, but you know I got some good things too on my balance sheet. And if those things count at all in God's economy, then I sat a good chance of being in heaven someday. But I don't want to find out too soon. I think that's the way that the majority of our of our American culture thinks. And folks, the sad thing about that is, is that we're not thinking deep enough. We're not thinking cogently enough about what the Bible says about our predicament before God and why our works don't count, only His grace counts. Think about it with me, folks. The logic is hard to escape. That Though good works and moral behavior are good things and they do benefit others, and as we're going to see, God does expect them out of his people. They can't by themselves atone for the sins that we've committed before God because God is holy and perfect. We are not. We are finite. And we just can't be good enough to ever please his perfection. I mean, that's what the Bible makes so very clear. It's just—it's fruitless for us to even try to do that as far as our salvation goes i mean think about this you and i have enough trouble when it comes to self-atonement with our human relationships amen like have you ever really ticked somebody off in your life maybe they're right now uh, maybe you've ticked off a spouse or hurt a child or, or your best friend you've alienated because of some ongoing personality flaw that you know about and they know about and it just reared its ugly head again how hard it is for you how hard is it for you to self-atone in that situation it's tough We do it all the time. We say, I'm sorry. That's not much help. We promise not to do it again. Okay, time will tell. And then time goes by, and we build up a pretty good track record. And sure enough, on a human level, it is possible to self-atone with another human being, given enough time, given enough trust, given enough grace, if you will. Now imagine trying to do that with God. Imagine the God of the universe who is offended because you and I can't even keep the simple Ten Commandments Imagine the God of the universe who asks us to be in right relationship with him, dependence on him 24-7, and we all know that we don't do that. And then he calls our sin a stench in his nostrils. That's a nice image, isn't it? Imagine that and us looking at God and saying, you know what, God, I know you want to give me some grace, but I think I'll just handle it on my own. I think I'll just be a pretty good person and hope that's enough. Folks, the logic of that is ridiculous. Why would we think like that? Why would we not receive the grace that God has given to us? Because I'm telling you here, God loves you, but he's a just God. And the sin that you and I have before him, as we saw last week, needs to be dealt with. It needs to be atoned for. Because at the end of the day, we all agree with justice. We all do. None of us want God to be unjust. It's just that we know without his grace that we're never going to get in. Now, let me give you a human example, and maybe you'll get this, because I, I, I think this really speaks to where we're at today. Um, Bernard Ebers was the former CEO of WorldCom, and he was indicted about six years ago for orchestrating the then-largest accounting fraud in the history of the known world. Bernie Madoff has now beat his record, but back then, six years ago, it was the largest. He, he committed a fraud to the tune of $11 billion. That led to the collapse of WorldCom and also the economic and vocational devastation of thousands of families and the loss of $100 billion to investors. Some of you remember this. And at his trial during sentencing after his conviction in early 2005, his lawyer Reed Weingarten asked for mercy. That shouldn't surprise us. He cited 169 positive letters from friends who knew Ebers, as well as his failing health at the age of 63, combined with the fact that he had given numerous charitable gifts, most of them anonymous, over the years. And Weingarten said this. Look up here on the screen. He said, if you live some 60-odd years, if you have an unblemished record, if you have endless numbers of people who attest to your goodness, doesn't that count? Doesn't that count particularly on this day? And the judge, without blinking, said, no, it doesn't count, and he sentenced Ebers to 25 years in a federal penitentiary, of which he is still there, obviously, today. And the judge's logic was simply this, that despite all the good, Ebers knew the law, and he knew it was wrong. He chose to destroy thousands of lives and families and their economic vitality, and that we live in a world of justice where law has to prevail. And it's got to prevail if we're going to have order. And so one has to pay the price for their consequences despite all the good that they might have done before that. And folks, it's interesting. You read the news right after this, and very few people disagreed with the judge. Why? Because we all know that when we see justice, we applaud. It's a good thing. And don't get me wrong. As Christians, we might have compassion on Ebers, We might feel bad for him. We certainly should pray for him. I mean, there's lots of things we could do to show compassion, but hardly any of us would disagree with the justness of what the judge delivered down. Why? Because we know that justice is sewn into the fabric of this universe, and all of us agree with it. It's just that when it comes to God, we throw out all of our well-earned and well-thought-out views of justice and somehow think that he should turn a blind eye. It amazes me. We think that when it comes to the greatest offense to ever hit the universe, the offense of humankind's rebellion against God and our self-reliance on ourselves when God made us to solely depend on him, we think that when it comes to that offense, God should say, ah, water off a duck's back. No big deal. I know you're trying hard, and I know, though you haven't even been able to keep the Ten Commandments, that you got a pretty good heart, so all of you get in. We honestly think that's the way God should deal with it, and yet that doesn't collate with a justice that we all know is right. You see, God gave us this sense of justice, and so justice has to prevail. And this is where grace comes in, folks, because as we're going to see in the coming weeks even more, it's God's grace that allowed him to be just, because that's where Jesus came in. Jesus is the one who took our penalty. Jesus is the one who bore our sins. Jesus is the one who pleads on our behalf. And because of that, God is still just but also forgiving. God is still holding the high standard that he has, and yet he's also merciful. God, who can't have fellowship with sin, eradicated it through his forgiveness in Christ on the cross so that you and I might now, as the Bible says, become the righteousness of God. It's an amazing gift God has given us. It's called our salvation. And the plan, the provision, even the pathway of faith alone is all about His grace. And though we're just about out of time, let me blow our minds even further and notice the last aspect of this journey of salvation and how it too is by grace. And I call it the positive results, what comes after our salvation of forgiveness and new life, and I get this, by grace. By grace. We're going to explore this in the week to come, folks, but I'm telling you, again, another huge mistake Christians make is to say, I'm saved by grace, but I better try really hard from this point on to be the person that God wants me to be. In other words, Paul the Apostles, we're going to see in Galatians 3, actually said it this way to the Galatians. He said, after I've begun in the Spirit, begun in grace, are you now going to try to attain your goal by the human flesh? And I think the average Christian day would say, yeah, sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, that's the way we function. But the Bible says, no, even the results of your salvation are all about His grace. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, for we are His workmanship, interesting, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now get this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does he mean by that? What do you mean prepared before him? What do you mean his workmanship? It's grace, folks. It's the fact that God says, I am so in control of life. I am so much the one swinging the bat. I am so much the one singing the song that even after you become Christians and start doing the good things that you should do, and we should, even after you become Christians and start doing those things, you don't get any of the credit and glory I do because in hindsight, you're going to realize it's still me working in and through you. Isn't that cool? And some of you saying, well, I, I don't know, it seems like kind of an assault to my autonomy. Well, if we were having a cup of coffee, one, I'd say you're not as autonomous as you think you are. But that's for another story. But the reality is, is that the beauty of this point here is that we can look back on every season of our life and say only God. Isn't that true, David? That we can look back on every season of our life and even the deep, dark, tool shed seasons that are very difficult for us. We look back and we say, it's His grace. And that causes us to depend even more. As John Piper, the great theologian, says, he says that causes us to then long for future grace and to depend each moment of each day on the grace that he's going to give us to get through this next day. As the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega from first to last. It's all his grace. I ended last week by uh, having us sing one of my favorite hymns. Again, some of you guys think I don't like hymns. It's not true. And I'm not trying to prove anything. I just, when I talk about grace, I just love the richness of the hymns. And so we're going to do something a little bit unique as we wrap up here this morning. I'm going to have you stand in just a minute, and we're going to sing another one of those famous, awesome hymns. And I'm telling you, if you guys don't sing, you are losers. You need to sing this thing out because it's an amazing old song, and it is called Take My Life. In fact the first chorus goes like this take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee and I just hope that if you're a believer here today and you're at all moved by his grace that you will belt this out that you'll sing it from your gut and use it as a time to recommit your life to him now here's the deal in a church like Scottsdale Bible Church we also know that there's some of you that have yet to become believers in Jesus Christ you're seeking among us and we're so glad you're here with us because you're invited by a friend, or you just started coming back to church again, or whatever your story is. We love you. I love you. And you're here today, and today is a day where you're ready to place your faith in Christ. The gospel has become clear to you for the very first time. I said to you guys last week that this year marks my 30th birthday of being a Christian. March 11, 1981. I remember like it was yesterday. Somebody explained to me the gospel. I never really understood it. I thought I was a Christian. Because I'd gone to church every Christmas and Easter, and I was a good person. But when they explained to me that my good works weren't going to get me to heaven, that only reliance and faith in Jesus was going to get me there, and that I needed to accept him as Lord and Savior, I'm telling you, the light went out of my head. I said, that makes sense. So in this little apartment outside of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, I knelt with my friend, and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Thirty years ago this March, Some of you are ready to declare today to be your spiritual birthday. You're ready to receive Christ. So what I'm gonna do is after we sing this song, I'm gonna have us all sit back down and then I'm gonna lead those of you who are ready to receive Christ in a prayer to receive him so that we can mark today as your spiritual birthday. So in preparation of that, listen to the words of this song. And again, for those who are believers, use this as a time to recommit your life to him. So why don't you stand right now Let me pray for us, and then Troy is going to lead us in this song. God, our Heavenly Father, one of the things that we are going to hammer home in this series over and over again is that at the end of the day, it's about your glory, not ours. That it's about your grace, not our strength. Lord, many of us are are not as strong as we think. We have great marketplace jobs. We're great at leading our family. We're really good at sports. All the things that our world applauds, we do yet, Lord, we know going to bed at night when we're thinking in those lonely times, we know that we're not all that people think we are. We know our need for grace. We know our need for forgiveness. We know our need before you to be reconciled. to you. So, Lord, for those of us who have done that by embracing Christ, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation you've given us, and we pray, God, that you receive our song of worship. Lord, for any that are ready to receive Christ today, use this song to prepare their hearts. We pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.
1: Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. Take my moments and. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: i'd like every head bowed right now because we're going to do some business with the lord every head bowed if we could right now as i said before we sang that song there's some of you who use this song just to reignite your faith give your heart to god some of us hopefully the rest of us use this to cement our walk with him and to recommit our lives at the beginning of this week something we should do every week every day every hour of our lives But if I don't miss my guess, there's some of you here today with your heads bowed right now that are ready to receive Jesus Christ into your life as the very first time. You realize that though you thought you were Christian, you're basically living a life of works, hoping that your works were going to get you into heaven someday. And today you realize it's only Jesus, only Jesus and his grace that can save you. So if you're ready to receive him here today in that vein, then with everybody else's head bowed, I'd like you to look up to me right now. If you're ready to receive Christ for the very first time, I'd like you to look up to me right now. As your pastor and your friend, I just wanna make eye contact with you. And as you're looking up, what I want you to realize is that the decision that you're making today to receive Christ into your life as your Lord and as your Savior it's a decision that will carry you for the rest of your life. It's a decision that you're making to place your trust fully in him and again to realize that only he is the one who can save you and bring you to himself. And so why don't you bow with me again right now and let's pray. Father God, there are some of us here, Lord, today that have realized that our sin has truly kept us from you. But we know that intuitively. Now we've honored that even more objectively today. We realize, God, that we have a need so desperately for you and that Jesus Christ is the solution, the answer that we need in life. And so, God, right where we sit right now, we accept you as Lord and as Savior, realizing that only you, not our works, is what can save us. And, Lord, as we accept you right now as Lord and as Savior, give us that initial burst of joy and that that, that fruit that only you can give, that from now on, we are yours, you are ours, eternally secure, nothing can shake that. God, for the rest of us, I pray that as we go here now from this place, that you would journey with us in your grace, that God, we would take no credit, but realize your goodness and your grace is all that we need. And we pray this in his holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.